It's time to find balance and be refreshed here on Every Heart, Every Woman. Every Heart, Every Woman. Get ready for uplifting music and inspiring interviews. Every Heart, Every Woman. Let's get motivated to move forward as we share our life experiences. Welcome to the show, everyone. My name is Carla Nivens. I am your host for Every Heart, Every Woman radio show. Before we jump into our interview, we're going to set the tone with a little bit of music. This is In the Garden. It is performed by a group that I am a member of called For Change. Sit back and enjoy. Sound of his voice 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. My name is Carla Nivens. I am your host for the Every Heart, Every Woman radio show. Our show is a program of Love Ministries, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can find out all of the great information about Love Ministries. Just go to their website, loveministriesbuilds.org. Well, I am so excited about our interview for today. We are welcoming for the first time, Rebecca Dwight Bruff. Rebecca is a writer, a speaker, an author of an award-winning book called Troubled in the Water. It is inspired by the life of Robert Smalls. Rebecca is also an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. So, Rebecca, we are so excited to have you today. And first thing I want to say is welcome to the show. Thank you, Carla. It's lovely to be able to talk to you. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Rebecca, you and I met, we talked about this before the interview actually started. You and I met um, Highland Park United Methodist Church. It was several years ago. And then you you um, left the church, you left Highland Park, then you went to uh, First United Methodist Richardson, correct? And I was appointed after Highland Park to University Park, not too far from Highland Park, okay. uh, served there for eight years, and then First United Methodist in Richardson. Right. Yes. That's yes. how it goes for us as United Methodist pastors. <laughs> uh, we move around a bit. Right, right, right. Well, now I notice, I, I t- I, we talked about this yesterday or the day before, Rebecca. I noticed that you started posting on your Instagram about um, Robert Smalls. And then I wanted to check out what you were doing. So I read and did some research, learned that you wrote this wonderful book. And um, I would really love to start this interview if you could share with us the journey that you took into writing this book. Sure, I'm delighted to. So um, so to sort of go back quite a little bit, I've always loved um, reading and writing. I've always loved sort of discovering stories of, you know, people that we didn't know anything about and um, kind of being um, being introduced to to a person or a world that is new to me, uh, but I never saw this one coming. <laughs> so after I had um, uh, been at, at University Park for several years, uh, my husband and I visited North Carolina and then South Carolina, first for a graduation, and then we just had a few extra days. So we spent a few days, this was in May of 2013, we spent a few days in this little coastal town called Beaufort, South Carolina. And to kind of place that on the map for your listeners, we are almost exactly halfway between Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia. Uh, On the coast, the Sea Island coast, known as the Low Country, beautiful, beautiful area. Um, We had just a couple of days here in Beaufort, and one afternoon we took a carriage tour through the historic district of town um, Beaufort has been here since 1711 or something like that. It's an mm. old, old little town. Um, and so the layers of history are really rich. So we got on this carriage tour and we've started clip clopping around the old part of town. And, and we stopped after a moment in front of this beautiful, small 
church, uh, Tabernacle Baptist Church. And the driver stopped and pointed out the bust of a man in the courtyard of that church and said, this is the bust of Robert Smalls. He's one of our, our local heroes. He was born here in 1839. He was born enslaved. Um, she said, I'll tell you a little bit more about him, but he's buried in this courtyard with his family. And uh, it was just an extraordinary person. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I've never heard that name. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wonder, wonder what this is about. So the, the tour continued. We went down the street and around a few corners and we looked at old, old homes and giant oak trees and learned some of the, the stories of our little town. And then the carriage stopped again in front of this beautiful home um, that looks like he'd been there for a long time. And she said, Robert Smalls, the man whose uh, statue we just saw, was born behind this home. He was born uh, in 1839. He and his mother were enslaved. His mother's name was Lydia Polite. And, uh, and the driver, I remember the driver of the carriage told us that Lydia Polite was 45 years old when she gave birth mm-hmm. to Robert alone that night uh, in, in 1839. So we also learned on that carriage tour that when Robert was 12 or 13 years old, the McKees, the, the family that owned he and his, it's so weird to talk about ownership of human beings, right? Um, but that was the case. So, so Mr. McKee hired Robert out, sent him to work in Charleston when he was 13 or 14 years old. And he, he was a lamplighter on the streets for a little bit. He worked in a restaurant for a while. And after a few years, he was working on a cotton steamer in the Charleston Harbor. He loved the water, uh, according to his own uh, recollections of those years. So he loved the water. He worked on a cotton steamer. And he was working on a cotton steamer when he was 20, 21 years old, when the Civil War began, right there in Charleston Harbor at Fort Sumter. And he probably watched that first battle. Well, the cotton steamers, right away became Confederate gunboats. The Confederacy was, was paying a lot of money to take over those steamers. And so at that point, Robert and his crewmates were enslaved on a boat that was being used to keep them enslaved by the Confederate Navy. Meanwhile, I didn't learn all of this on the carriage tour, but most mm-hmm. of it. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in Beaufort, um, uh, shortly after, after the war began, uh, Abraham Lincoln sent an enormous fleet of ships to Port Royal Sound, which is the, the harbor uh, between our little town of Beaufort and, and Savannah, basically, Hilton Head. Uh, 17,000 troops on a bunch of boats, and the entire white population evacuated that day. Hmm. They called it the Great Skedaddle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned, I learned pieces of that on that carriage tour. Um, I learned that day that after the war was over, um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Robert's escape in a few minutes, but, uh, he managed to, to commandeer the boat and, and escape with the people he loved. After the war was over, he came back to Beaufort. He bought the house that he was born behind and lived there the rest of his life, raised his children there. Uh, that in itself, I think, is, is pretty extraordinary. He was elected to the state legislature and the U.S. Congress after that. 
And one of his first actions in the state, <clears throat> excuse me, the state legislature was to author uh, a bill that ensured literacy for all the children of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And this after he had been prevented from reading and writing as a child. So he was, he was quite the hero. Um, you know, that handful of things that I learned on the carriage tour just stunned me because I'd never heard his name. It was such a heroic story, kind of larger than life, every piece of it. And the escape itself is, is just breathtaking. Um, so we got off the carriage tour that afternoon and dropped into the little bookstore here on, on Bay Street in Beaufort. Um, and I said, show me the books about this guy. I want to know more. And uh, there weren't very many. There are a handful. I, I picked up the three that they had. And we flew home to Dallas a couple of days later. And I started reading about Robert Smalls and his life and his courage and his legacy. And, and the more I read, the more curious I got. Mm-hmm. And the more I realized how little we know about him and his story and how important that story is. So that's really where it began for me. Yeah. You know, that's, that's so interesting. It's number one, how you can hear something and it, it kind of affects you. And I know that this story, you know, you, you, you went on this tour and you got just a little bit of information, but the information kind of festered in you like it didn't leave you alone right yes it got under my skin (laughs) yeah yeah so and and I love how the Lord does that to us you know when we're going through life and we think okay we're an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church life is great you know I have no complaints about that and then the Lord says look here's something pay attention to this and then doesn't let it leave you alone and it did not leave me alone. So it um, it kind of simmered and percolated and, and poked at me for the next three plus years while I was still working in, uh, in the church. I yes. um, eventually was at, at Richardson United Methodist Church. It was a wonderful church and a lot of old friendships there. I was my my teenage years were spent in that church. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was at home and I was comfortable and that was good. But, but I was still curious about this man. I was reading the stories that I could find, and I was discovering um, that there are just these gaps in the historical record. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a biography. I mean, there's, you know, information about when and where he was born and, and a little bit about his escape and, and quite a lot about his legislative career. But none of that was answering my questions about his... Um, you know, where did that great courage come from? Right. And, and uh, his, what seemed to be a really extraordinary um, uh, spiritual grounding. Mm-hmm. And, and then real practical questions. His last name was Smalls, but that wasn't his mother's last name. And it wasn't right. his own last name. And I couldn't find anything that told me where his name came from. Right. Uh, you know, I couldn't find anything that told me uh, how he eventually learned to read and write. I couldn't, there was nothing anywhere that told me how he met his, uh, his wife. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, there were just all these, all these things that, that made me more and more curious. I, I really wanted to know what his relationships were like. Um, you know, I, I have two sons and um, 
and through their teenage years, you know, those, those high energy moments of uh, rebellion when things aren't fair and mm -hmm. anger and I'm going to change this thing that I don't like. And I imagine, you know, what was that like for him? He had a lot yeah. to, to, uh, to deal with and a lot to, to fight against. And I really was curious about what that was like in his world. Right, right. So how did you go about um, getting your information? Did you talk with, you know, descendants of his family line? Like, how did you, because like you said, there were gaps in the history books. And we have found that there are so many stories like yours, where you figure out something about someone who has um, been heroic and who has um, just gotten through and figured out a way, you know, to keep moving forward and has done something great for a lot of people, but nobody's talking about it. Right. You know, right. It's, it's really hard to get information about people. So how, how did you even go about finding information about Robert Smalls? Well, I was, I was fortunate uh, that I found the, the books that I found early on, because that was a, those were good starting places for me. Okay. The biography that I, that I picked up on that first trip was written in the, uh, about 1995 by a professor at the University of South Carolina, really well done. And so that gave me sort of the, the foundation to work from. Mm -hmm. And the same with the, the book of his legislative career. So those were sort of the basics. Um, and then I did what we all do. You know, I Googled, <laughs> mm -hmm. read Wikipedia, and, and that was both helpful and unhelpful. What I discovered there is that there was clearly a lot of misinformation because I read articles that, that completely contradicted one another. Um, I read articles that, that uh, said definitively that Henry McKee was Robert Small's father. And I read articles that said definitively that that was not the case. Mm. Um, I read articles about, uh, you know, about how many children he had. And I mean, all kinds of things. And they were all over the place. So that helped me sort of put my, my list of questions together, the things okay. I kind of wanted to get to the bottom of. Um, I, I had a, you know, there are some things that we can do by, by internet that are pretty remarkable. I was, um, I was at home in Dallas one evening and I was thinking about the house on Prince Street behind which he was born that he later lived in. Mm -hmm. And so, so I was trying to remember the address of that house. I wanted to see if I could find a picture of it. And I Googled around for a minute. I found the house and I found uh, an article or a kind of an ad. It had been on the real estate market a few years before that. Mm -hmm. And the agent here in Beaufort had done a, a video walkthrough of the home. Oh. So from my house in Dallas, I was able to walk through that historic home. Very nice. And, uh, and kind of get a tour of it, which was a lot of fun. And of course that, ignited even more questions for me. Right. Um, you know, what was it like for this young man? He was, he was a child, um, this very same age as the McKee's daughter. They were born just a few months apart from one another. Okay. And so that triggered questions for me, like, you know, what, what did he experience? What did he feel? And what did he think when he saw Liza Beth, the little girl, his age, uh, go up 
uh, up the front steps and in the front door, which he was never allowed to do. Mm-hmm. What was it like when he knew that she was having a good warm meal, sleeping in a warm, uh, comfortable bed in the winter time? He he wasn't he didn't have those experiences, mm-hmm. and yet they probably played in the yard as children when they were when they were small. Right. Um, you know what was it like for him to know that she had this relationship with her father, and he he didn't know who his father was. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things, um, that early research really helped me to sort of identify some of the questions that I wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. A little bit later, in in early 2017, we actually moved to Beaufort. Um, the itch had just gotten to be too much to scratch long distance. Right. And, uh, and a series of conversations and, and decisions helped us to, um, to make the move here so that I really could research deeply and, and write what I hoped would be an account of his life, a, a fictionalized story that could explore these questions um, that would honor him and honor his character. And so after we moved here, I was able to access our extraordinary library system the Buford District Collection is is just rich with documents from, you know, 300, 200 years ago. Right. Um, I was able to do that. I was able to walk the streets and and learn things that I didn't know and didn't understand about um, about you know the architecture, the trees that grow here, the way the river runs through, and the tides, and you know the the things that he experienced every day that I knew nothing of. I was also really, really fortunate that I had the opportunity to meet Robert Small's great, great grandson. All right. A, an extraordinary gentleman. His name is Robert Boulware Moore, and he lives in Charleston. And we had the good fortune of being introduced kind of early in that process. Mm-hmm. What was that like? <laughs> well, it, it was, it, you know, like, like most friendships, it was an evolution. Mm-hmm. So when we first met, I'd been here a few months. I was working on the book, um, doing a lot of research. And he, um, he came from Charleston to Beaufort to speak at our historic Penn Center, which is a Gullah cultural center uh, in one of our sea islands. And I was so excited that he was going to be here. Mm-hmm. And he was speaking about his great-great-grandfather. And so I just, you know, I was beside myself. I got there early. Um, there wasn't a very big crowd, which really surprised me. And I introduced myself, but I was so starstruck and so intimidated and so uncertain of my ability to write a book that I didn't tell him that that's what I was doing or that that's what I was interested in. And so I just said, I'm so glad to meet you. I'm so delighted to hear you speak today. And I have a big history crush on your great, great grandfather. I love it. And it was another year and a half probably before we met again. And I told him about the book. Okay. 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 Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. It was a lot of fun. And I also think it's so amazing how the Lord leads and guides every single one of us. So I want to encourage all of our listeners, if you're listening to Rebecca's story and there is something that the Lord has put on your heart and it kind of won't leave you alone. I would pray that you would follow Rebecca's lead, you know, um, jump into that, follow that and follow the Lord's leading into what he has called you to do. 
So it's time for us to take a break. But when we come back, Rebecca's going to talk more about her book, Trouble the Water, in the process of getting all of this into a fabulous book. We'll be right back. Every Heart, Every Woman, the show where women find balance, peace, and inspiration. Now let's get back to the show with your host, Carla Nivens. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Carla Nivens. I am your host for the Every Heart, Every Woman radio show, where we are having a great conversation with Rebecca Dwight Bruff. Rebecca is a writer, a speaker, author of award-winning book, Trouble the Water, inspired by Robert Smalls. Rebecca is an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, and we are so excited that we are getting a chance to chat with you, Rebecca, and learn all about your book, Trouble in the Water, which is um, just a great story. And I know that the Lord is going to use your work really right now, like now is the time for this. So I thank you for following the Lord in this process. Um, I want to jump back into our conversation. Before we took the break, you had done all of this amazing research and just you really had to dig this story out because um, the information wasn't readily available. So after you did all of this kind of getting into the life and the head and the heart of Robert Smalls, what was the process of getting this amazing story into a book? Well, that's a great question, Carla. Um, you know, I'd, I'd not written a novel before. <laughs> I, of course, you know, with, with school and seminary and those sorts of things, there's, there's writing, but it's not fiction. And mm -hmm. it's not imagining and, and filling in the blanks and putting words in people's mouths and that sort of thing. Um, and I really didn't know quite where to start with that. I know that, and I, I knew early on that, you know, the more you read, the better you can write. Um, every writer, I think, will, will tell you that that's pretty important. Um, but I did, <laughs> I did that thing that we do when we're trying to learn a new skill. I Googled that, you know, how to write a book, how to write a novel. And, and uh, it sounds silly, but part of what I discovered is that there are lots of uh, workshops and seminars, lots of opportunities in pretty much every community. Um, uh, lots of things that you can just, you know, books you can download, things you can, can read. And so I started sort of teaching myself a little bit about that. I, I realized uh, early on in the, in the research process that I had sort of, I'd sort of drawn the arc of the story. Um, because it's a, based on a historical figure, I had some, some sort of stakes in the ground. You know, I knew when he was born, when he died, a lot of the events that happened in between those dates, the places, some of the people. So I, I had sort of a framework to build on, um, but I had so much to learn. I was ridiculously fortunate to be accepted to, um, to a seminar and workshop in Key West, Florida. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd been watching this seminar online for a couple of years. I learned that, that the minute it opened up for registration, it, it sold out. And mm -hmm. so I knew I had a good reputation. I'd kind of paid attention to that. Uh, so the year that I really 
decided it was time to roll up my sleeves and try to write the story, I registered for that and I learned that they uh, provided scholarships to some of their workshops. And one of those workshops really appealed to me because it was taught by uh, a very good instructor and it was about, it was called fact to fiction. You know, it was taking uh, facts of history and, and creating the story around it. Um, so I was fortunate to do that. I was also fortunate, very fortunate, when we made the decision to move here to Beaufort. Um, Beaufort was the, the home of the writer Pat Conroy, novelist Pat Conroy. And, and people uh, are familiar with his name. He wrote Prince of Tides and the Great Santini, uh, some extraordinary work. He lived and, and wrote here most of his life. Pat had, had passed away in 2016. We moved here in early 2017. And the Pat Conroy Literary Center had just opened, hmm. maybe a month before we got to town. One day I dropped in at the Pat Conroy Literary Center to pick up a book to send home uh, to my mother. And the director there, you know, helped me find the book. And then he said, he said, Cassandra's here and she'd be happy to autograph that for you if you like. Cassandra is, is Pat Conroy's widow, Cassandra mm -hmm. King, an extraordinary author in her own right. Um, and I said, oh, don't bother her. You know, I, you don't need to do that. And he's, he said she would, she would like that. She would appreciate that. And so he introduced us. And, uh, and I still wasn't telling anyone what I was trying to do. I was completely, I just couldn't, I felt so called to write this book. And at the same time, I couldn't fully embrace the possibility that I could do it successfully. Right. Um, so I love what you said to your listeners about listening to God's call on mm. our, on our hearts. Um, so, so I was introduced to Sandra and she said, um, she said, are you visiting or do you live here? And I, I said, well, we're, we're here for the time being because I'm, I'm working on a project. I wasn't going to tell her I was writing a book. Mm -hmm. uh, I was way too intimidated to do that. And uh, I said, I'm on, I'm on sabbatical right now. And and her eyes kind of widened and she said, sabbatical, really? From what? And I said, well, I'm a United Methodist minister. Well, as it turns out, her first marriage was to a United Methodist minister. She knew all about the world that I was living in. And we, we struck up a friendship pretty readily. Uh, and that was, like I say, early after we, we moved here to Beaufort. So she invited me uh, right away to take advantage of some of the workshops that the Conroy Center was providing and I was able to do that that spring and mm -hmm. sit in on a, on a wonderful workshop. Um, I had begun sort of putting the storyline together, but still had so much to learn about how to actually write it. Mm -hmm. And that, that was an extraordinarily helpful workshop. Um, and that, that sort of, I guess that was kind of, uh, it was kind of like hitting a starter button or something. Cause I had sort of these bits and pieces of, ideas and stories. And then that seemed to just sort of throw it all into the pot together and stir it up and, and uh, things started cooking, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, and for the next three or four months, it was, it was really interesting. It, it was very much God at work because I was literally getting up in the morning, going straight to my chair to write and writing for several hours hmm. and just kind of knocking out a lot of, a lot of the story. And it was coming easily. It was coming fast. Uh, I would sort of write until I got to a place where I was a little bit stuck and realized I need to go back to the library or walk around town and, you know, get my, my bearings on, on the directions of the story. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So it came pretty quickly then. And not too long after that, I was also introduced to the woman who became my agent. Um, She had been Pat Conroy and Sandra's agent. Mm -hmm. Uh, She had known uh, some of the history here in the low country for some time. And when she heard I was working on a book about Robert Smalls, she was delighted. She said she'd been looking for someone to write that book. Oh, wow. And so it was, it was this real journey of doors opening one at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'd, if I'd had any idea about all the doors that had to open, it would have been too daunting and too overwhelming. Right. But they opened one at a time and at the right time. And I tried to just patiently and faithfully keep moving. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, so over the next, I guess, 10 months or so, I really poured myself into that manuscript. And, and then we had a, um, what we thought was a good manuscript to begin sending out to, to editors and publishers, yeah, see if it could yeah. find a home. So can you share with us, as you began to send this out, um, can you share with us some of the, the feedback that you received? Because you, you know, so you're writing a book about a Black man. Was there any uneasiness, any pushback on that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there was. And, and some that I didn't fully expect. Um, that fall, when, when Marley began sending the book out, we began getting our first rejections. And at hmm. first I was sort of, it's weird, but I was sort of excited. I was like, oh, I got rejected by Random House. <laughs> you know, that's a big publisher. <laughs> and then it sort of sunk in that it's still a rejection. Um, but the, the feedback was interesting. The, the feedback was very consistent. They, they thought it was an exciting story. They liked the writing. They liked the premise. They, um, they appreciated the, uh, the fullness of it. Um, but, and the but was they were... Uh, to a person in the large, the editors of the large houses, publishing houses, they were very hesitant to publish a book about an enslaved black man 150 years ago by a privileged white woman now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when we first began getting that feedback, I was, um, I was confused by it. I was defensive. I was angry, all those things. Mm-hmm. And then I began thinking, I, I need to learn from this. And I, and I uh, began really paying attention to the issues of representation in literature and music and movies. You know, whose story is this? And who does this story belong to? And who am I to, you know, to put words in the mouth of Robert Smalls? Uh, early on, I, I felt strongly about making it a first person story. I felt like he's, you know, he's been silenced far too long and I wanted right. to, to give a, him his voice. Um, and I knew that I was, that I was really stretching, you know, to cross all these distances of race and gender and culture and privilege, uh, geography. I mean, mm-hmm. all of it. Um, but I still believed in doing it that way. And so what I learned and, and what became really apparent to me after really kind of wrestling with that, talking to other other writers, and and uh, really spending time listening to what I needed to learn in that, um, the question sort of shifted for me from who am I to tell this story to who am I to withhold this story? 
-hmm. Who am I not to tell it? Um, people who look like me have a, suppressed this story for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Lots of these stories after, after uh, the dismantling of Reconstruction and through the Jim Crow era, a lot of great stories were just basically erased from our history books. Um, and, and I felt like this story and so many others deserve to be heard. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the only one that can tell the story, but I felt very called to be one of the voices that shared the story. So that was a, an important uh, learning experience for me and shift for me. I also uh, was able to really sort of clarify why I believe fiction is so important, all, all literature, uh, mm -hmm. but fiction in particular, because that when we read fiction, we're reading about other people's experiences, other people's right. lives. Mm -hmm. If we only wrote our own experience, we would just, you know, that's an echo chamber for sure. And, mm -hmm. and there's not much to learn there. But stories give us a doorway into, into the hearts and lives of other people, into their their dreams and hopes and hurts and challenges and fears and all of that. Um, and I, I really felt like that was an important role in this book to ask people and particularly people who have never heard the story to enter into it and to enter into it from the perspective of an enslaved person. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we stuck with it. We stuck to our guns. That's how the story needs to be told. And my agent found a, a brave publisher who said, yeah, this is a story that needs to be out there and yeah. we'll publish this. We're behind you. Yeah. So that's, that's how it happened to finally be born. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. How then I, I guess I want to ask you maybe the same question, but in with your audiences, is there, have, have, has it raised any eyebrows um, w even within the African-American community? So that was, that was one of my questions as well, is mm -hmm. would that happen? What kind of um, resistance or pushback or acceptance would I experience here? Um, so I was fortunate, that very first uh, workshop that I told you about here in, in Beaufort, um, I was able to, uh, to get to know and, and become good friends with a, an artist here who comes from the, the Gullah culture, the mm -hmm. uh, descendants of the, the enslaved folks that were here for so long. And she gave me some great feedback and really encouraged me and, and said, we, we need you to tell the story. So that mm -hmm. was encouraging. Um, at the same time, I, you know, I didn't know how people would receive the story. Um, as it turns out, it's been very well received, mm -hmm. um, much more than I anticipated, uh, far more than I anticipated. And for that, I'm grateful. Um, we haven't had any terrible reviews yet and you know, it'll come. Somebody will <laughs> be mean and hate it for whatever reason, uh, but that's not happened yet. Um, what it has done is really stimulate what I think are some very important conversations, mm -hmm. conversations about why stories like this have been suppressed, mm -hmm. um, why it's so important to honor the stories of others and to tell them and to be honest about them and, and to be honest about, our, uh, for the white population to be honest about our complicity in, in some of these hard stories. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really opened that door. I did have a, um, a couple of interesting conversations after the book came out. One uh, happened here in town. I got a call 
from, uh, from a woman at the Baptist Church of Beaufort. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a historical figure in the book, uh, Richard Fuller, who was the pastor of that church at, that, at the historical time period. And he went on to be the founder of the Southern Baptist mu- Movement uh, in full support of slavery. And I portrayed him as he was historically. Okay. And when this, when this woman and I talked, and she liked the book, she wanted me to come and speak to a group. But after a few minutes, she said, well, now, you were a little hard on our Richard Fuller. <laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> but I was, you know, no harder on him than history shows, you know, his character. I, mm-hmm. I was, I'm a truth teller. That's part of the work. Um, so that, that was interesting. And that's given me some opportunities to, um, to move into that conversation with folks. Mm-hmm. Another really interesting and, and instructive moment came for me when I was on a, um, I was in East Texas on a book tour with, um, with a, a women's group of readers, uh, all white women, and they liked the book. We talked about a lot of the issues in it. And then this woman said, I'm so glad that we're not having to deal with racism in our country anymore. And this was just last fall. Mm-hmm. And I I was sort of taken aback by that and I, and, and I decided not to say what was in my head, <laughs> mm-hmm. exactly the way it was in my head at least, mm-hmm. but I, I, I felt like it was a really important time to have a conversation that is often very difficult uh, for, for whites. And I said, you know, we've never been victims of racism. And so we don't really get to declare when or if we're, if, if it's behind us, mm-hmm. you know, our mm-hmm. work is to be, uh, to be actively anti-racist, but we don't, we don't get a say in, in declaring it over. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course those conversations these last several months have, have amplified, right. And become more frequent and I think are terribly important. Yes, absolutely. And one, one thing I know that you've said to me that, um, Robert Smalls, his vision for racial equity was really ahead of his time. Can you talk more about that? So, I, I mean, I, I'm confident that he was not the, the only uh, person to, to come out of his culture that, you know, that had a vision, for, a dream, a dream of racial equity, but he could see it, you know, and he, he knew how to work toward it. He, uh, he was a strong leader. He was fearless. He was, he was, um, he was just not afraid to keep moving toward that mm-hmm. uh, through, through local politics, through state legislation. Um, he, he I, I feel like he could just see it so clearly as, as a true reality and not, not only a dream. Right. Not only a dream. And he was able to uh, to lead and talk about that in ways that made it a, a uh, tangible reality for mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and really create the synergy that helped move toward that. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 amazing. And Rebecca, the the name of the book, Trouble the Water. Yeah. How did you come to the name of the book? <laughs> you know, I I didn't know that that not everyone grew up with, with a song, Wade in the Water. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned it as a child. I grew up in the church and it was just kind of my, part of my lexicon of music for a long time. 
um, I loved the the song, and I began as I began working on the book. I became interested in some of the um, some of the old spirituals, mm-hmm. you know, the the songs of of the people here, um, and so many of those songs I learned were sort of code language for um, for the trouble at hand and also for the the possibilities of escape. You know, mm-hmm. there would be uh, kind of signals in the songs that right. let people know when someone like Harriet Tubman was was coming up the river and and uh, uh, facilitating uh, liberation. And so so that was just something that I began listening to. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, not in not in the historical record, but in the novel, Robert has a nickname, which was a convention here historically. Um, children often were given what was called a basket name mm. that that coincided with the circumstances of their birth. And in the book, his basket name is Trouble. Okay. And, uh, and I'd given him that name. And then I was starting to listen to this music. And so the, you know, kind of the idea of good trouble emerged. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just felt like that was a, a good, it was sort of a working title for a while. Uh, and then, I, you know, then it became clearer and clearer to me that the, the song itself, Wait in the Water, really evokes the, um, the liberation of the Hebrews through the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. You know, God makes a way through the water. It evokes that wonderful story in the Gospels when, uh, when Jesus visits a pool and there are the, the infirm waiting there for a, an angel to come and stir to trouble the water. And the first one in is, is healed and made whole. And so those images felt very true to, to Small's own story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Rebecca, I thank you again for, number one, for your time, for coming to share with us, but honestly, just for following the Lord and and doing this important work and getting it out there. And it's also amazing that you have won three awards. Um, The Trouble the Water has won three awards uh, so far, and we pray for many more and uh, pray for for more success for, for this work. And so, Rebecca, tell us, how can everyone get their hands on the book? <laughs> Thank you for asking that, Carlin. And thanks for the time to, to let me talk about the story. Um, so the book is available in, you know, most of the conventional ways, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, and all, those, all those places. Um, I know that Logos Bookstore in Dallas carries it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I'm, I believe the Barnes & Nobles around town carry it, some of the other shops there. Um, if people are would like an autographed or inscribed copy or a gift copy, they can go to my website, okay. rebeccabreath.com, um, or email me. I love hearing from people. Wonderful. It's, Wonderful. it's broadly available. Oh, and I should say this, um, the audio recording is almost finished. All right. And it is being narrated by an extraordinary gentleman, uh, Gerald Rivers, is a voice actor in California, okay. who's... Um, who's most well known for his delivery of Martin Luther King addresses. Uh, He is, he just has a magic voice and the heart for the story. So I'm very excited about that. That should be available in another month or so. In another month. Okay. That is absolutely amazing. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much um, for your time. And, um, 
I, I really and truly encourage all of our, our listeners to go out and to get the book and, and just engross yourself into this story. Well, everyone, our radio show is a program of Love Ministries, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Go to loveministriesbills.org for all of the great information about Love Ministries and carlanivens.com for the information about what the Lord is doing in this season in my life. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you back here next week. Mm-hmm.